Captures by John Galsworthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. Story One, Section One: A Feud. Part One. Its psychic origin, like that of most loves and hates, was obscure and yet, like most human hates and loves, had a definite point of physical departure, the moment when Bowden's yellow dog bit Steer's ungaitered leg. Even then it might not have got going, as they say, but for the village sense of justice, which caused Steer to bring his gun next day and solemnly execute the dog. He was the third person the dog had bitten, and not even Bowden, who was fond of his whippet, could oppose the execution, but the shot left him with an obscure feeling of lost property, a vague sense of disloyalty to his dog. Steer was a northerner, an easterner, a man from a part called Lincolnshire, outlandish, like the Frisian cattle he mixed with the Devons on his farm. This, Bowden, could not help feeling, in the bottom of his soul, was what had moved his dog. Snip had not liked, any more than his master, that thin, spry, red-gray bearded chap's experimental ways of farming, his habit of always being an hour, a week, a month earlier than Bowden, had not liked his lean, dry activity, his thin legs, his east-wind air. Bowden knew that he would have shot Steer's dog if he himself had been the third person bitten by it, but then Steer's dog had not bitten Bowden. Bowden's dog had bitten Steer, and this seemed to Bowden to show that his dog knew what was what. While he was burying the poor brute, he had muttered, Damn the man! What did he want, traipsin' about my yard in his Sunday breeks? Seein' what he could get, I suppose. And with each shovel of earth he threw on the limp, yellow body, a sticky resentment had oozed from his spirit, and clung, undissolving, round the springs of its action. To inter the dog properly was a long, hot job. He comes and shoots my dog, of a Sunday, too, and leaves me to bury him, he thought, wiping his round, well-coloured face, and he spat as if the ground in front of him were steer. When he had finished, and rolled a big stone on to the little mound, he went in, and, sitting down moodily in the kitchen, said, "'Girl, draw me a glass of cider.' Having drunk it, he looked up and added, "'I've a buried she up to crossovers.' The dog was male, a lysome whippet, unconnected with the business of the farm, and Bowden had called him she from puppyhood. The dark-haired, broad-faced, rather sullen-looking girl, whom he addressed flushed, and her grey eyes widened. "'Twas a shame,' she muttered. "'Ah,' said Bowden. Bowden farmed about a hundred acres of half-and-half half sort of land, some good, some poor, just under the down. He was a widower, with a mother and an only son, a broad, easy man, with a dark round head, a rosy face, and immense capacity for living in the moment. Looking at him, you would have said not one in whom things would rankle. But then, to look at a West Countryman, you would say so many things that have their lurking negations. He was a native of the natives, 
his family went back in the parish to times beyond the opening of the register. His ancestors had been churchwardens in remote days. His father, Daddy Bowden, an easy-going, handsome old fellow, and a bit of a rip, had died at ninety. He himself was well over fifty, but had no grey hair as yet. He took life easily, and let his farm off lightly, keeping it nearly all to pasture, with a conservative grin, Bowden was a liberal, at the outlandish efforts of his neighbour Steer, a Tory, to grow wheat, bring in Frisian stock, and used new-fangled machines. Steer had originally come to that part of the country as a gentleman's bailiff, and this induced a sort of secret contempt in Bowden, whose forefathers in old days had farmed their own land round about. Bowden's mother, eighty-eight years old, was a little pocket-woman, almost past speech, with dark bright eyes and innumerable wrinkles, who sat all day long in any warmth there was, conserving energy. His son Ned, a youth of twenty-four, bullet-headed like all the Bowdens, was of a lighter colour in hair and eyes, and at the moment of history, when Steer shot Bowden's dog, he was keeping company with Steer's niece, Molly Winch, who kept house for the confirmed bachelor that Steer was. The other member of Bowden's household, the girl Pansy, was an orphan, some said born under a rose who came from the other side of the moor, and earned fourteen pounds a year. She kept to herself, had dark fine hair, grey eyes, a pale broad face. Broody, she was, given somewhat to the tantrums. Now she would look quite plain, then, when moved or excited, quite pretty. Hers was all the housework, and much of the poultry-feeding, wood-cutting, and water-drawing. She was hard-worked and often sullen because of it. Having finished his cider, Bowden stood on the kitchen porch, looking idly at a dance of gnats. The weather was fine, and the hay was in. It was one of those intervals, between harvests which he was wont to take easy, and it would amuse him to think of his neighbour always Puzzavanton over some improvement or other. But it did not amuse him this evening. That chap was for ever trying to sneak ahead of his neighbours, and had gone and shot his dog. He caught sight of his son Ned, who had just milked the cows, and was turning them down the lane. Now the lad would slick himself up, and go courting that niece of Steers. The courtship seemed to Bowden suddenly unnatural. A cough made him conscious of the girl Pansy, standing behind him, with her sleeves rolled up. "'Bootiful evening,' he said. "'Good for the corn.' When Bowden indulged his sense of the aesthetic, he would, as it were, apologize with some comment that implied commercial benefit or loss, while Steer would pass on with only a dry, "'Fine evening.' In talking with Steer, one never lost consciousness of his keen on-the-makeness, as of a progressive individualist, who has nothing to cover his nature from one's eyes. Bowden one might meet, for weeks without realising, that beneath his uncontradictious peasantry was a self-preservative individualism quite as stubborn. To the casual eye, Steer was much more up-to-date and civilised. To one looking deeper, Bowden had been civilised much longer. He had grown protective covering in a softer climate, or drawn it outward from an older strain of blood. 
The gnats are dancing, he said. Fine weather. And the girl Pansy nodded. Watching her turn the handle of the separator, he marked her glance straying down the yard to where Ned was shutting the lane gate. She was a likely-looking wench, with her shapely browned arms and her black hair, fine as silk, which she kept brushing back from her eyes with her free hand. It gave him a kind of farmyard amusement to see those eyes of hers following his son about. "'She's Ned's if he wants her, young hussy,' he thought. "'Begad!' but it would put Steer's nose out of joint properly if that girl got in front of his precious niece. To say that this thought was father to a wish would too definitely express the circumambulatory mind of Bowden, a lazy and unprecise thinker. But it lurked and hovered when he took his ash-plant and browsed his way out of the yard to have a look at the young bull before supper. At the meadow of waterweed and pasture, where the young red bull was grazing, he stood, leaning over the gate, with the swallows flying high. The young bull was lookin' up bravely. In another year he would lay over that bull of steers. Ah, he would that! And a dim savagery stirred in Bowden. Then passed in the sensuous enjoyment, which a farmer never admits, at the scent, sight, sounds of his fields in fine weather, at the blue above and the green beneath him, the gleam of that thread of water, half smothered in bulrushes, daggers, and monkey-flower, under the slowly sinking sun, at the song of a lark, and the murmuring in the ash-trees, at the glistening ruddy coat of the young bull, and the sound of his cropping. Three rabbits ran into the hedge. So that fellow had shot his dog, his dog, that had nipped up more rabbits out of corn than any dog he ever owned. He tapped his stick on the gate. The young bull raised a lazy head, gazed at his master, and, flicking his tail at the flies, resumed his pasturing. "'Shot my dog,' thought Bowden. "'Shot my dog. You wait a bit.'" Part Two. The girl Pansy turned the handle of the separator, and its whining drone mixed with the thoughts and feelings, poignant yet formless, of one who had little say in her own career. There was an ache in her loins, for hay-harvest was ever a hard week, and an ache in her heart, because she had no leisure, like Molly Winch and other girls, who could find time for the piano and to make dresses. She touched her hard frieze skirt. She was sick of the ugly thing, and she hastened the separator. She had to feed the calves and set the supper before she could change into her Sunday frock and go to evening church, her one weekly festivity. Ned Bowden, her fancy soared to the monstrous extravagance of herself and Ned walking across the fields to church together, singing out of one hymn-book. Ned, who had given her a look when he passed just now, as if he realized at last that she had been thinking of him for weeks. A dusky flush crept up in her pale cheeks. A girl must think of somebody. She wasn't old Mother Bowden, with her hands on her lap all day, in sunlight or fireshine, content just to be warm. And she turned the handle with a sort of frenzy. Would the milk never finish running through? Ned never saw her in her frock, her frock sprigged with cornflowers. He went off too early to his courting Sunday evenings. In this old skirt she looked so thick and muddy. 
and her arms, gazing despairingly at arms browned and roughened, her fancy took another monstrous flight. She saw herself and Molly Winch, side by side, ungarbed. Ah, she would make two of that Molly Winch. The thought at once pained and pleased her. It was genteel to be thin and elegant, and yet, instinct told her, strength and firmness of flesh had been desirable before ever gentility existed. She let the handle go, and, lifting the pail of waste, hurried down with it to the dark byre, whence the young calves were thrusting their red muzzles. She pushed them back in turn, greedy little things, smacking their wet noses, scolding them. Ah, how mucky it was in there! They ought to give that byre a good clean-up. Banging down the empty pail, she ran to set out supper on the long deal table. In the last of the sunlight, old Mother Bowden's bright eyes seemed to watch her inhumanly. She would never be done in time, never be done in time. The beef, the cider, the cheese, the bread, the pickles, what else? Lettuce, yes, and it wasn't washed, and Bowden loved his lettuce. But she couldn't wait, she couldn't. Perhaps he'd forget it if she put some cream out. From the cool, dark dairy, down the little stone passage, she fetched the remains of the scalded cream. Watch the cat, Mrs. Bowden! And she ran up the wriggling, narrow stairs. The room she slept in was like a ship's cabin, no bigger. She drew the curtain over the porthole-like window, tore off her things, and flung them on the narrow bed. This was her weekly change. There was a hole in her undergarment, and she tore it wider in her hurry. I won't have time for a good wash, she thought. Taking her one towel, she damped it, rubbed it over her, and began to dress furiously. The church bell had begun its dull, hard single chime. The little room was fiery hot, and beads of sweat stood on the girl's brow. Savagely, she thought, why can't I have time to be cool like Molly Winch? A large spider, a little way out from one corner of the ceiling, seemed watching her, and she shuddered. She couldn't bear spiders, great hairy things. She had no time to stretch up her hand and kill it. Glancing through a chink left by the drawn curtain, to see whether Ned had come down into the yard, she snatched up her powder-puff, precious possession, nearest approach to gentility, and solemnly rubbed it over face and neck. She wouldn't shine, anyway. Under her Sunday hat, a broad-brimmed straw, trimmed with wide-eyed artificial daisies, she stood a moment, contemplating her image in a mirror the size of her two hands. The scent of the powder, as of gone-off violets, soothed her nerves. But why was her hair so fine that it wouldn't stay in place? And why black, instead of goldeny brown, like Molly Winch's hair? Her lip drooped, her eyes looked wide and mournful in the glass. She snatched up her pair of dirty white cotton gloves, took her prayer book, threw open the door, and stood listening. Dead silence in the house. Ned Bowden's room, his father's, his old grandmother's, were up the other stairs. She would have liked him to see her coming down, like what the young men did in the magazines, looking up at the young ladies, beautiful and cool descending slowly. But would he look at her when he had his best on, going to Molly Winch? 
she went down the wriggling staircase. Gnats were still dancing outside the porch, ducks bathing and preening their feathers in sunlight which had lost all sting. She did not sit down for fear of being caught too obviously waiting, but stood changing from tired foot to foot, while the scent of powder mingled queerly with the homely odour of the farmyard and the lingering perfume of the hay stacked up close by. The bell stopped ringing. Should she wait? Perhaps he wasn't going to church at all, just going to sit with Molly Winch, or to walk in the lanes with her. Oh no, that Molly Winch was too prim and proper. She wouldn't miss church. And suddenly something stirred within the girl. What would she not miss for a walk in the lanes with Ned? It wasn't fair. Some people had everything. The sound of heavy boots from stair to stair came to her ears, and more swiftly than one would have thought natural to that firm body, she sped through the yard and passed through the door in its high wall to the field path. Scarcely more than a rut, it was strewn with wisps of hay, for they had not yet raked this last field, and the air smelled very sweet. She dawdled, every sense throbbing, aware of his approach behind her, its measured dwelling on either foot, which no Bowden could abandon, even when late for church. He ranged up, his hair was greased, his square figure stuffed handsome into board-like Sunday dittos. His red face shone from soap, his grey eyes shone from surplus energy. From head to foot he was wonderful. Would he pass her, or fall in alongside? He fell into step. The girl's heart thumped, her cheeks burned under the powder, so that the scent thereof was released. Young Bowden's arm, that felt like iron, bumped her own, and at the thrill which went through her, she half closed her eyes. "'I reckon we're too late,' he said. Her widened eyes challenged his stare. "'Don't you want to see Molly Winch, then?' "'No, I don't want any words about that dog.' Quick to see her chance, the girl exclaimed, "'Ah, t'was a shame it was, but she'd think more of her uncle's leg than of him, I know.' Again his arm pressed hers, he said, let's go down into the break. The bit of common land below the field was high with firs, where a few brown gold blossoms were still clinging. A late cuckoo called shrilly from an ash tree below. The breeze stirred a faint rustling out of the hedgerow trees. Young Bowden sat down among the knee-high bracken that smelled of sap, and put his arm about her. Part Three in parishes with scattered farms and no real village, gossip has not quite its proper wings, and the first intimation Steer had that his niece was being slighted came from Bowden himself. Steer was wont to drive the seven miles to market in a small spring cart filled with produce on the journey in, and with groceries on the journey out, holding his east wind face, fixing his eyes on the ears of his mare. His niece sometimes sat beside him, one of those girls whose china is a little too thin for farm life. She was educated and played the piano. Steer was proud of her in spite of his low opinion of her father, who had died of consumption and left Steer's sister in poor circumstances. Molly Winch's face, indeed, had refinement. It coloured easily a faint rose-pink, 
was pointed in the chin, had a slightly tip-tilted nose, and pretty truthful eyes, a nice face. Steer's mare usually did the seven miles in just under forty minutes, and he was proud of her, especially when she overhauled Bowden's mare. The two spring carts travelled abreast of each other just long enough for these words to be exchanged. "'Mornin', Bowden!' "'Mornin', mornin', Miss Molly. Haven't seen you lately. Thought you were visitin'. "'No, Mr. Bowden. Glad to see you lookin' up so well. Reckon Ned's too busy elsewhere just now.' It was then that Steer's mare drew well ahead. "'My old mare's worth two of his,' he thought. Bowden's cart was distant dust before he turned to his niece and said, "'What's the matter with Ned Bowden? When did you see him last?' His shrewd eyes noted her lips quivering and the stain on her cheeks. "'It's—it's it's a month now.' "'Is it? Is it?' was all Steer said. But he flicked the mare sharply with his whip, thinking, "'What's this? Didn't like that fellow's face. Was he making game of us?' Steer was an abstemious man, a tot of slow gin, before he embarked for home, was the extent of his usual potations at the Drake. But that day he took two tots, because of the grin on the face of Bowden, who would sit an hour and more, after he had gone, absorbing gin and cider. Was that grin meant for him and for his niece? A discreet man, too, he let a fortnight pass while he watched out. Ned Bowden did not come to church, nor was he seen at Steer's. Molly looked pale and peaky. Something deep stirred in Steer. If he don't mean to keep his word to her, he thought, I'll have the law on him, young pup. People talked no more freely to Steer than he to them, and another week had passed before he had fresh evidence. It came after a parish meeting from the schoolmistress, a grey-haired, single lady, much respected. "'I don't like Molly looking so pale and diverty, Mr. Steer. I'm grieved about Ned Bowden. I thought he was a steady boy.' "'What about him?' "'That girl at Bowden's.' Steer flopped into the depths of consciousness. So everybody round had known, maybe for weeks, that his niece was being jilted for that cross-bred slut known and been grinning up their sleeves had they and that evening he announced i'm going round to bowden's molly she colored then went pale they shan't put it up on you he said i'll see to that give me that ring of his i may want it molly winch silently slipped off her amethyst engagement ring and gave it to him steer put on his best hat breeches and gaiters took a thin stick, and set out. Corn harvest was coming near, and he crossed a field of his own wheat into a field of Bowden's oats. Steer was the only farmer round about who grew wheat. Wheat. In Bowden's view, it was all his politics. But Steer was thinking, My wheat's looking well. Don't think much of these oats. Another of his foreign expressions. Oats were corn to Bowden. He'll have no straw. He had not been in Bowden's yard since the day he executed the yellow whippet dog, and his calf twitched. The brute had given it a shrewd nip. The girl pansy opened the door to him, and, seeing the flush rise into her pale cheeks, he thought, 
If I were to lay my stick across your back, you'd know it, my girl. Bowden had just finished his supper of bacon, beans, and cider, and was smoking his pipe before the embers of a wood fire. He did not get up, and there seemed to steer something studied and insulting in the way he nodded to a chair. He sat down with his stick across his knees, while the girl went quickly out. "'Beautiful evening,' said Bowden. "'Fine weather for the corn. Drink a cider?' Steer shook his head. The cautious man was making sure of his surroundings before he opened fire. Old Mrs. Bowden sat in her chair by the hearth, with her little old back turned to the room. Bowden's white-headed bobtail was stretched out with his chin on his paws. A yellow cat crouched, still as the sphinx, with half-closed eyes. Nothing else was alive except the slow-ticking clock. Steer held up the amethyst ring. See this? Undisturbed by meaning or emotion, Bowden's face was turned slowly towards the ring. Ah, what about it? "'Twas given to my niece for a purpose. Is that purpose going to be fulfilled?' "'Tidn't for me to say. Ask Ned.' Steer closed his hand, slightly covered with reddish hairs. "'I've heard tales,' he said, "'and if he don't mean to keep his word, I'll have the law of him. I've always thought my niece a sight too good for him, but if he thinks he can pull a slight on her, he's reckoning without the cost. That's all.' Bowden blew out a cloud of smoke. Ned's a man grown. Do you abet him? Bowden turned his head lazily. Don't you come here bullying me. And again he puffed out a cloud of smoke. Its scent increased the resentment in Steer, who was no smoker. Like father, like son, he said. We know what your father was like. Bowden took his pipe from his mouth with a fist the size of a beefsteak. With the old lady settin' there, get out of my house. A wave of exasperated blood flooded Steer's thin cheeks. You know right well that she hears naught. Bowden replaced his pipe. Tis no use teaching you manners, he muttered. Something twitched in Steer's lean throat, where the reddish-gray hair covered his Adam's apple. I'll give your son a week, and then look out. A chuckle pursued him to the door. All right, he thought. We'll see who'll laugh last. End of parts one to four of the feud.